Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mada, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. Louisiana isn't just a sportsman's paradise, it's a birder's paradise, maybe even an animal lover's paradise. There are 25 rare bird species tracked by the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, the American oyster catcher, the red cockaded woodpecker, the swallow-tailed kite, the crested caracara, and some good news, the bald eagle is no longer threatened. So who is doing the protecting? Well, it's not just wildlife and fisheries. The effort takes some civilian help, and the state permits people like my guest Julie Rabelais to operate avian rehabilitation facilities to rehab injured birds that are federally protected. Through her nonprofit, For the Birds of Acadiana, Julie has rescued and rehabilitated 400 birds, and the work is meticulous. She cares for dozens of birds at a time, sometimes feeding them every 15 minutes for 12 or 14 hours a day. Uh, Before her life in bird rehab, she ran a clothing boutique and is also a master gardener. Julie grew up in Michigan but moved to Lafayette in 2004. Julie Rabelais, welcome to Out the Lunch. Thank you for having me. Now, some animals need attitude rehabilitation. Aggressive or fearful dogs can be problematic, not just for their owners, but for other people. And these are the pets sort of most likely to end up in the care of animal control. And you might think, well, don't they need a little bit of tough love? Well, not so, says my guest, Vicki Bourgeois. She specializes in positive reinforcement training methods that she offers through her company, Sit Happens. Vicki is one of only three certified behavior consultants in the state of Louisiana and a certified trick dog instructor, among other accreditations. Sit Happens is based in Scott, where Vicki offers board and train programs. Uh, she retired as a vet tech about 10 years ago and was born and raised in Gonzales. Vicki Bourgeois, welcome to Out to Lunch. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so, Julie, the first thought, that, the first question that sort of popped in my mind um, when I saw what you do is, if it's the state of Louisiana's job, right, to protect rare animals, why do they rely on nonprofits to do this work? You know, that that's a good question. I, I, there's, I, I don't know the uh, exact number of rehabilitators in the state, but I know there's quite a few. We, we have, right. Um, I hesitate to call it a resource, right? But I mean, I guess you could look at it that way and, and protected animals and things like that and things that are obviously very important to the state of Louisiana. And yet, you know, it, I, I hear about the, the amount of time that you have to put into this and I'm saying that it seems like it's difficult work and maybe something that's probably not lucrative, you know? So- it is definitely not lucrative, but let me just say this, let me back up. Um, billions of birds are killed just from human-related causes. Wow. And so... Um, you know, every day people come across birds that are injured. There's uh, cat attacks, window collisions, just loss of habitat. Yeah. And so I, I think even with now during the pandemic, more people are home. And so they come across, maybe they happen upon injured and, and orphaned wildlife birds, uh, in my case. Um, and so it's it's just so common. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by nature. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there is a need for it. Um, even given that it's so common, I mean, do people know to find you? I mean, like, where they're saying, like, I'm imagining, you know, happening upon, like, you know, a, a more exotic bird, right? And saying to myself, like, well, this is something that needs to be dealt with. I mean, but I don't know that I would have thought immediately had I not 
you know, had some research in front of me to say, like, well, let me call a, a bird rehabilitation specialist, right? Absolutely. It's not really on the top of people's minds. But um, what I find in my experience is that when people find injured um, wildlife or it, specifically birds, yeah. typically they're going to go online, Google, um, can be a good thing and not so good thing, but they'll search for injured wildlife, what to do. And uh, now, you know, usually my facility will pop up or wildlife and fisheries. Um, and so there's now there's links to um, the website. And Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries has a great website where they list all of the uh, wildlife rehabbers in mm. the state. So you can go search through parish or what type of animal you found. Um, and that would link you to somebody who could help you out. Wow. Uh, so, Vicki, uh, you know, you specialize in positive reinforcement training. And, you know, I have a golden retriever, and I took her to a puppy imprint class like 12 years ago. She's that old. Um, and I, and I, I remember doing a lot of what I would think of as positive reinforcement, right? I mean, like I had like a little uh, fanny pack with treats in it, and, you know, I'd call her over, and I'd give her, and it worked. She sits and stays pretty well. But so, so what's different, though? I mean, what, you know, how do you contrast this with maybe a more conventional um, dog training regimen? So traditionally, when people think of traditional dog training techniques, a lot of things that come to mind are that we need to be dominant over our dogs, um, that dogs are pack animals, um, and trainers would use tools such as choke chains or pinch collars or even electronic shock collars. Um, the research that we know now is that it's debunked, and dogs are actually what we call social creatures. So they learn best um, throughout the use of fear, pain, intimidation, or force. Um, so it's kind of a lot like people. We find what motivates them, whether that's treats, toys, praise, or access to resources or things that they want, and use those things to modify behavior. So what you did, if you had a fanny pack with treats, uh, rock one every day. That is a large <laughs> portion of what I do is um, rewarding things that we like to see. The more we reinforce them, the more we're going to see them. That's interesting. I mean, because, I mean, I'll say that what I remember was I had a fanny pack full of treats, and it was sort of a, a you know, stick and carrot type of thing, right, where, you know, we'd say, like, well, you know, come here, sit, give the treat, and if there was a misbehavior, you know, the, the directive was, okay, well, be loud, right, say no really loud, and I, I mean, I feel like I, I, I have to say, like, I still say no really loud if she's doing, she's eating something. I mean, she's a very well-behaved dog, to be clear, but so that does kind of I think defy my own sense of how this works. So, so does that not work? Do I, um, should I not be shouting no at my dog? I would say if you're shouting, it's not the most effective way to change behavior. Just because I'm a positive reinforcement trainer doesn't mean that there aren't any consequences. Sure. It's just that the consequences that we use aren't physical or intimidating. Um, mm -hmm. Using consequences such as that can, what it can actually do is suppress behavior and cause fear or aggression. So the dog isn't actually learning what not to do. They're responding to the tone of your voice going, mm -hmm. oh, all right, dad screams if I do this. Um, so instead of us maybe, you know, saying no, we would prefer to cue the dog to do something else. So if my dog is jumping on someone, instead of saying no, no, that's not a really defined behavior. It's a lot easier to tell them, go lie down on your bed. So you're not exactly just trying to convince people to like have heart to hearts with their dogs, right? No. I mean, there's still an element <laughs> of like, we have to, you know, uh, figure that out. I mean, you know, um, Julie, I I'm wondering like, are there, I guess, general misunderstandings about the psychology of birds, let's say. I mean, like something that, like you're saying, you know, I find that really interesting that there's this element of, okay, well, 
maybe I've misapprehended how dog brains work. I mean, people say bird brained. I mean, <laughs> uh, we always say that, um, you know, when somebody calls you a bird brain, you should consider it a compliment okay. because they are incredibly smart. And I think we do, uh, we don't always appreciate how intelligent they are. Um, and I, I'm, I, I could go on and on with examples of my personal experiences in rehabbing injured birds and how it sounds silly, but they, they can, they speak to me. I mean, you can, I can, they tell me when they're injured or when they, when they need help. It's really incredible. Yeah. I mean, what's the, the variance, you know, in terms of like bird intelligence? I mean, it's something I, I, it's popped in my head is just like, I, I might think, and look, I have very, very little education in this sort of thing. So, you know, like a person might a, a, approach, say, like a more common bird and have a certain reaction to it. Like, you know, I don't know if we need to rescue this bird, it, but perhaps something more exotic, they might say, well, I understand that this creature has like an owl, right? Like mm-hmm. I think people have general perceptions of owls being wise. I mean, it, it, does the range kind of work? By species like that? Um, you know, I, I, I really don't have um, knowledge of like this, all the studies that have been done sure. with all of that. But um, I can tell you each each species. I mean, imagine the, the bir- birds as, you know, small as sparrows or even smaller migrate thousands of miles every every year. And, and to know, you know, to go to the exact place, mm-hmm. you know, to know where they to go. Uh, you know, that to me is amazing. Um, so I, I think, I think in relation to size, I think they're all intelligent in their own way. I mean, I know that there are studies done like with crows per se, or it may be like you said, raptors, eagles, and owls, they all have their own types of intelligence Mm -hmm. and, you know, knowing how to use tools and things. Um, but I think, um, that we often, don't give the smaller birds enough credit. Sure. I'm thinking, I guess that that raises a question in my mind, right? I mean, um, you know, we're talking about sort of having a sense of communication with an animal. I mean, but in your work, I'm wondering if you're having to spend a lot of time training the people, right? I mean, like where you're having to say to yourself, like, well, look, you would, you would be training me to say, look, Christian saying no that way, right, is not quite the right way to go about it. And you probably have to reverse some sort of cultural training that people have about how a person talks to a dog, right? Yes. So um, one thing that we have is that we're actually not dog trainers. We're more human trainers. Um, We haven't met dogs um, that we can't train at Sit Happens. Mm -hmm. However, we have met people that we cannot train. Um, The dogs pick up training very quickly. Um, They communicate with body language. dogs? Even aggressive dogs. Now, it can take a lot longer, a little bit more patience because we're spending time kind of rewiring the way they perceive the world. Um, But once I go in, they start to really kind of just, the dogs, like she said about the birds, they speak to us as well through body language. Mm. So if I walk into a room and a dog is crouched in the corner growling, it's telling me, Vicky, get back. I don't want you in my space. Um, So, you know, it's my job as a behavior consultant to point out the language that their dog is using. And sometimes the people, it's a lot harder for them to pick it up because they're saying, oh, it's okay. They won't bite you. Hmm. And just because maybe they haven't bit someone doesn't mean that they won't. So um, really being skilled at, you know, reading dogs' body language, um, it's extremely sophisticated. It can range from leave me alone, I don't like you, to touch me right here, I want to play. 
and the dogs pick up on it so quickly. Um, it's the humans that, you know, we have to kind of modify their behavior and change, you know, things that they've done before. Maybe they've always swat the dog on the nose with a newspaper when it jumped on someone. Um, and so they're reaching out to us to just say, okay, this isn't really effective. What can I do differently? It, it, it strikes me that, like, you probably have to wrangle frequently with a lot of conventional wisdom that turns out to be incorrect, right? I mean, I feel like even, you know, with our dog, right, you know, my wife and I would dispute whether, like, okay, if a dog, like, rubs up against you, what does it mean, right? Um, what, what, Because you're talking about, you know, it could be sophisticated vocabulary of body language, and I'm saying, okay, well, that might be kind of an intimidating thing for an owner to say, like, I don't know what my dog's telling me. I mean, what's the process of actually getting somebody to understand that and decode it? So um, we can actually visibly point to the dog. So like, an, um, I guess a white, old wives tell you could say is a wagging tail means a happy dog. Right. That's not always the case. So it's disappointing. Um, it is. <laughs> so, you know, we can go in and I can point and say, okay, look, your dog's tail is midline with the body and it's nice and loose. This is an indication that they're relaxed. But if their tail is tucked, your dog is nervous. If their tail is really high and wagging, they can be overexcited or even aggressive. So we can go in and point out those things in context. Um, one thing we want to say is look at the overall context and the overall dog, um, not just one part of the body. Hmm. Um, but yes, it's a lot of, oh, no, they're fine. They're wagging their tail. They're happy. Um, so it's really kind of breaking it down, saying, well, while they're happy, they also just tried to, you know, run up and bite someone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think they're a little conflicted in that. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Vicki Bourgeois of Sit Happens and Julie Rabelais of For the Birds of Acadiana. Julie, do, do most people intuit when a bird, I mean, I, I feel silly kind of asking this, but do most people kind of understand when a bird is in distress? I mean, obviously, like, you know, if you can see an animal on the ground that should be flying, that's one thing. But I mean, are there other things where people kind of understand what they're bringing to you that the animal's actually hurt? Um, well, maybe yes and no, but mostly no, probably. Um, the most, um, when we, we get injured and um, orphan birds mm -hmm. uh, during the spring, uh, springtime is when the birds are laying their eggs and they're building their nests and, and they're having their babies. So um, the most common uh, types of birds that we get in are babies that fall out of the nest and a lot of times people will pick them up um, thinking they need help and when they really don't. Um, so fledglings will leave the nest at a certain age and they still look like they might, they're, they're kind of grumpy looking and their feathers are all disheveled that, you know, they're cute, they're cute but homely kind of at that stage um, and they, they maybe can't fly quite uh, just yet. So they look like they need help and a lot of times kids will go and pick them up and they'll maybe try to put them back in the tree then they fall back out again but this is a normal thing and so um, we end up getting a lot of birds that really didn't need to be rescued um, so we try to educate them when we can but oftentimes it's too late because they'll have already taken them in and they'll already try to feed them which we say please don't because it can actually do more harm than good. I, I feel like a thing that I've internalized since childhood is you don't touch a baby bird because the mother will stop. Is that true? Well, that's actually a myth, a big myth. Um, that's not true. Busting myths uh, on this show. I love it. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's not true. So birds really don't have a good sense of smell. Um, I think that 
um, we don't we still don't recommend you touching a bird or handling it because it can stress them out um, and stress can um, actually accelerate death so we do recommend if you have to touch a bird just do it quickly or if you have gloves to you know scoop it up with gloves and then put it back uh, in the nest if if that's the appropriate action um, and then just wash your hands yeah so, so I mean how do you it seems like there's a little bit of nuance there then, right? Like, yeah. if you're, I'm, I'm imagining you're relying on people bringing the birds. So you can't be everywhere where there's a, exactly. an injured yeah. bird right. unless you have great hearing, you know, like you can hear it from a distance or something. So, I mean, how do you help? I guess what would be your advice to somebody in terms of, like, what signs to look for so somebody knows this is an animal I ought to take to for the birds or this is one that I need to leave alone? Exactly. So, um, well, there's there's three stages. There's the hatchling stage when they have, they're, they're naked. They're little naked babies. They have no feathers. Um, if you find a little hatchling that fell out of the nest, that's the appropriate time to look nearby. There's typically a nest generally right above, and then you can place that baby back in. Um, if the bird has blood on it or it looks like um, you know, it's injured in any way, then you would need to uh, seek help. Um, but if there, there's no um, indications of any blood or injury and you can see the nest nearby, you can put it back in. Um, the second stage is nestling. This is when they starting, they're starting to get their little pin feathers. Um, typically, they end up falling out of the nest from storms, um, high winds, Sometimes predator attacks will come and knock a nest down. Um, if the mama birds, if you still see them around and they're fussing at you, then that's a good sign that you can put them back up into their nest. If there's no nest, we can educate you on making a substitute nest. Um, and then the third stage is fledgling, and that's the appropriate time when they leave the nest and a lot of times they still are not good at flying and it takes them three or four days sometimes certain birds up to two weeks spending time on the ground while the parents still feed them um and so it really it's really a lot of education so it it, it can be difficult when we get calls in um because we're not there seeing it so yeah. we have to rely on what they're telling us and and what kind of bird it is and and having to um you know hopefully give them the right advice um, and I think that's why typically we get a lot of birds in that maybe don't need to be rescued. They're fully healthy, but we end up finishing off and raising them to release. Hmm. So, Vicki, you also do dog trick instruction, right, which I thought was interesting. I mean, so, so who is the typical person that comes? I mean, I hear tricks. I'm thinking this is more than just I want my dog to sit or heal. Like, this is, you know, agility things. You see a border collie doing flips. I mean, what... Who's bringing their dogs to you to do tricks and why? So surprisingly, just your average pet owners, um, likely clients who have already done some training with us, but your dog doesn't need any training to do tricks. Um, we get a lot of kids in trick class and just people who want to have fun with their dogs. It's yep. um, one of my favorite classes to teach because it's all about fun. Mm -hmm. There's no pressure. Um, we can teach the dogs to roll over, jump through a hula hoop things like that. So it's just kind of for the person who's like, you know, I, I want to bond more with my dog. I want to connect more with them. What's something fun that we can do together? Yeah. I mean, 
I remember seeing a documentary a couple of years ago about dog dancing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that the sort of thing that you that you do in this class, or are there a set of basic tricks that you're saying, okay, most people want to come in and, and, and teach this to my dog? So that is actually called freestyle. That is not something that I personally do. Um, <laughs> I don't think I have the client base that would be interested in it. Um, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but we kind of have a preset thing. So I know that like really popular things that people want their dogs to do are to shake, to mm-hmm. roll over, take a bow. Um, some of our private clients, they can work up to more advanced tricks. Uh, get a beer for me out of the refrigerator. <laughs> um, carry me the newspaper. Right. Things like that. But in our classes, it's kind of just what you would think of as dog tricks, uh, rollover, shake, play dead. Those things are very popular. Do people pay more to, look, to teach their dog to get the newspaper than to just learn to sit? I mean, is that is it sort of like an advanced thing, or do you charge them still by the hour or whatever? I mean, when, how, no. how, do you, how do you schedule that? So we have a few different kind of tiers of payment. Yeah. Um, we try to hit all price points. So the most affordable type of training would be group classes, which is a group setting at our facility in Scott. That's where we do trick classes, um, workshops, basic obedience. We also have in-home private training. So that would be custom to whatever you want your dog to learn. Maybe you want to do potty training. Maybe you want your dog to get a beer out the fridge. And then we, after that, we have the behavior modification, which is a little bit pricier because there's more liability and risk to working with dogs that are aggressive can the dogs distinguish between like beer labels i mean could could you get that granular where you're saying like go get me a beer out of the fridge or maybe versus a coke i mean is is it how how precise can they get (laughs) you can get pretty precise with it um i've never done that i've never had a client ask for it um but you know i've had it more kind of a precision with toys so for instance if i ask my dog go get your ball Okay, well, this is the ball. Go get, you know, where's your dinosaur? They'll go get the dinosaur. Um, I'm sure we could work up to different types of beers because they can identify shapes. Sure. You could put koozies on some. Locations yeah. can mean different okay. things. Um, but if I just set down, like, a Coke can and a Dr. Pepper, uh, well, they, they're not going to be able to distinguish those because they look identical to them. Right. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that was just wishful thinking. I don't, I don't really have a... A fridge stock quite that way, so I don't really know that it matters. Uh, Julie, I mean, so you guys work with the state, I mean, and you're, but you're running a nonprofit. I mean, so, so how are you actually compensated for the hours that you're putting into this? We're not. So we're not employees of the state. We're just permitted through them. We're per- permitted through Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and um, some of us are also permitted through U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Okay. So uh, it, specifically, migratory birds are all federally protected. So in order to do bird rehab, we have to also be permitted through U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, so, so they, like, they don't, so if you do this work, I mean, the state has no funding there to are, say. There are no, currently no grants or funding. I, I really don't know the reason why there aren't any. Yeah. Um, but no, so we rely on um, public donations and, of course, a lot of personal out-of-pocket expenses. So re- rehabilitation sounds, um, you know, I know there's a television shows um about rehabbers and things and it sometimes people think it's glamorous or uh, fun and but it really is a tough job um and it's not cheap yeah sure i mean it's so, not cheap. so you're having to do kind of more conventional like nonprofit donation funds like saying like hey we're doing a fun drive this spring and how do you get people well, to know? I mean, you know, fundraisers can be uh tricky as well um because 
you know, it's hard, first of all, for rehabbers. Most of us are individuals that do it out of our own home wow. facilities. Um, so coordinating a whole fundraiser, per se, is difficult. Um, that's one reason. Number two, it's not like we can uh, bring people and and let them see what we do. Um, we're not allowed to... Um, show the birds that are or mammals that are in distress um so they're they're really protected and we have rules that we have to work with so you know it's sort of um it's a it's a tricky thing so most of the donations that i get are from the people that bring in the birds to me um i i have some literature that i give them and reasons why we could use their help mm-hmm. um we um all of the medical expenses we pay for we we are required to work with veterinarians local veterinarians um and so um but but we do have to pay for the medications wow you know so you mentioned that there are you know, tv shows that sort of give people a different impression perhaps of what you do i mean vicky i'm imagining that's the same case for you with dog training right it was a very famous dog training type shows i mean do you find that people come to you and you have to kind of dissuade them of what what it is that you even do for a living uh yes very much um so a lot of the tv dog training sphere is heavily edited um they're also kind of putting dogs in positions to quote unquote behave badly Uh so that it can appear as though it's very quick to teach your dogs these things um so one big misconception I think is you know you can watch popular TV shows and be like oh well just a week ago their dog was trying to eat everyone in the house or it jumped on everyone and then a week later it's magically trained Mm -hmm. um it doesn't happen that way we actually like in dog training a lot um similarly to going to the gym so if you just go to the gym for a week you're gonna feel great um but you're not going to really see any results um, very quickly. It's going to take a few weeks to a few months. So in TV dog training, they make it appear as though it's instant, when in reality, dog training with clients and with a professional dog trainer, it takes you know weeks to months to modify certain behaviors. Now, that's not saying we can't see progress and improvement quickly, but to reach your long-term goal may take, it, it's not going to happen in a week for most people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think people rarely have a view to, you know, how much work goes into these sorts of things. And so, you know, it's part of the, what's so rewarding about this gig is I get to hear exactly what goes into it. And I, I appreciate both of you guys coming in to, to share uh, your work with us. On a, So, Vicki and Julie, thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you for having us. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana have been Julie Rabelais of For the Birds of Acadiana and Vicky Bourgeois of Sit Happens. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRBS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Vicky and Julie by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. And you can find and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from the show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Aster Morgan of Pecan Island. And you can find more of Aster's photos on at astermorgan.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show was engineered by Aaron Thomas, and our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis, and I'm Christian Mater, editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit news outlet. For more stories deeper than the headlines, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. 
I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation and Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane, Three Roll is cane to glass. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 